to Women's Health, Wisdom, and Wine, a weekly conversation with practitioners, providers, patients, and healers about complex reproductive medicine and women's health challenges, the value of an integrative approach to these challenges, many of the women's health topics you're already thinking about but uncomfortable talking about, and my personal favorite, wine. I'm your host, Dr. Lorena White, an integrative reproductive medicine and women's health provider, licensed acupuncturist, clinical herbalist, and a former labor support doula in the Washington, D.C. metro area. My goal is to bring women's health-specific evidence and expertise to the forefront of daily women's health and wellness news through informative conversations. If you have ideas, questions, and specific topics that you would like us to cover in future podcast episodes, please leave them in the comment section or send us an email at info at To learn more about our team's approach to care, visit our website at www.larenawhite.com. As you enjoy the podcast, conversations, and wine time, remember to follow the podcast, leave a five-star rating, and tap on the bell to make sure you never miss an episode. Let us know what is your favorite topic, who has been your favorite guest, and who would you like to hear from on the next pod. Most importantly, share the podcast and your favorite episode with a friend or colleague. Lastly, remember that this podcast is not designed to be a substitute for a bona fide relationship with a licensed or certified healthcare professional. Coming up, I talk with Dr. Elizabeth Goff about burnout, how to recognize it, and how it affects health equity and the medically underserved. We'll join the conversation after a brief word from our partner. Maintaining your strength and a healthy heart as you age helps promote healthy living and hence quality of life for all people as they age. To help prevent the natural decline of muscle and heart function, it's important to make sure you're getting the nutrition your body needs, and not just any nutrition, but science-backed nutrition, like life, by the AminoCo. You can take AminoCo's life formula as part of your normal routine to help maintain muscle mass as you age, maintain good heart health, and increase longevity as you age. AminoCo's Life is a patented blend of essential amino acids that works to improve quality of life and lengthen total lifespan so you can stay healthy and active as you age. Life has been shown in clinical trials to clinically improve blood lipid profiles by significantly reducing triglycerides, LDL, VLDL, and total cholesterol. This product has also improved physical function in patients with heart failure, and they had the science to back it up. Life is 100% science-backed, and it is designed for heart health and active aging, which are crucial for total lifespan. So why Aminoco? Life works by triggering muscle protein synthesis, which is the body's mechanism for repairing and building muscle. When tested against any protein source, life is more than three times more effective on a gram-for-gram basis at stimulating muscle growth and repair. I know just how important it is for my quality of life and staying healthy as I age. You can check out their science by visiting aminoco.com backslash LW30. I've been on the lookout for something that could help me support healthy blood flow and help preserve heart strength and function while also helping me maintain healthy triglyceride and LDL cholesterol levels. Furthermore, something that tastes great and is easy to incorporate into my daily routine. What's even better is that AminoCo's Perform was created by former Harvard professor and well-renowned clinical researcher, Dr. Robert Wolf. If you're looking for a nutritional advantage when it comes to maintaining muscle mass and cardiovascular health as you age, I recommend you give life a try. And right now, you can get 30% off when you visit aminoco.com backslash LW30. That's the letters L, W, and the numbers 30. Again, right now, you can get 30% off LW30 when you visit aminoco.com backslash LW30. That's the letters L, W, and the numbers three, zero. Our collective health depends on the well-being of the health workforce. Sadly, the realities of our healthcare system are driving many healthcare workers to burnout. Today, we're talking with Dr. Elizabeth Goff about burnout. Dr. Goff, please introduce yourself and tell us about how you knew you were experiencing burnout. Hi, I'm Dr. Elizabeth Goff. I'm a family practice doctor in Lynchburg, Virginia, which is a 
relatively small city between Roanoke and Charlottesville. Um, I've been out of residency for three years now, so just kind of starting into my practice. But um, about a year and a half, two-ish years ago, um, I really felt like things were starting to slide down between the COVID pandemic and um, thinking about having a second child and, and trying to balance right. all of the things going on, I noticed I wasn't giving myself the best to patients. I wasn't being the best for my family. Um, I'd show up at work and I'd go, just please help me make it through the day. And I was mm, like, that is yeah. that is not normal for somebody who's worked this hard to get where I want to be and feels like this is a mm-hmm. calling to be going, I just hope I can make it through the day today. Right. Yeah, that's definitely not a good sign, especially so, you know, even considering all things, not early in the, you know, being in the medical field, but in your actual career aspect. Yeah, you're relatively early. Um, So I think a lot of times we think about burnout as this like destination, but they're actually, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, It starts with ignored stress that becomes chronic stress. And then that chronic stress leads to burnout. And that burnout leads to unhappiness and that also leads to becoming unproductive at work. So as such, we can see what a scary situation this can be for providers and patients alike. So you viewed medicine, like you said before, specifically primary care, as part of your calling. When did things begin to change and how did you notice that you were changing? Yeah, I, you know, I think it, you're right. It kind of comes on slowly. You start and you're enjoying your patients and you're taking care of people and, um, forming relationships with your patients. And then it's, oh, we, you know, I had to stay late today because I didn't get all of my notes done. Or, Mm -hmm. oh my goodness, I have 15 prior offs that I need to fill out. out. Oh, okay. um, This patient was rude or whatever. And understanding that patients have bad days too. So you're going to get rude patients occasionally. Mm -hmm. And, And then it just kind of builds. And then it feels like every day. And once you start drowning, it's hard to stop drowning. So you're like, yeah. you know, things that wouldn't have been an issue before now are an issue. And and it just feels like it piles on top, on top, on top. And then, like I said, yeah. with the pandemic happening, everything changed. It's not what you expect um, coming out of residency to now have to try to figure out how to take care of patients in a world where patients don't really want to come see you because they don't want to get sick. Right. And it's scary to even be a provider because you're there. And as a part of your job, the oath that we took, Mm -hmm. it was, no, first do no harm. And this is what we signed up for. Like, that's why people are coming to us. They're sick. They need our help. That's what we're here for. But not having the answers. But at the same time, with no answers, with no no resources, um, we have more questions than answers, in fact. Mm -hmm. And yet we're still pretty much in the line of fire, pretty much standing, you know, with no answers, no response, nothing that's adequate, nothing that's timely, and no resource to even do the job that we, you know, that we, you know, we're, we're called, called to, to do. do. Yeah. yeah. And so it's even more stressful because everyone's stressed. And at the same time, there are people dying. So these decisions that we're making or not making or don't know how to make, yeah. there's someone that on the other side, that's not just, you know, their care is delayed, mm-hmm. but that could wind up, you know, potentially in a, in a death situation. Right. And it's not just, it wasn't just COVID, like people were dying dying from COVID, but also, well, I'm not coming in to get my blood draws. So we don't know where my blood sugars are. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't want Mm -hmm. to, I have this mole that is looking abnormal and I don't want to go in and get, get exposed. And so how do we manage that and it it was the non-urgent, the non-urgent but, at the but st- incredibly important things and yes you know they they did studies that showed the rate of um breast cancer screening and colon cancer screening and all of those things went down during covid and we don't know we still don't know what that outcome is going to look like for patients mm-hmm. and so right. you know you don't get a roadmap for navigating a global pandemic <laughs> <laughs> that unfortunately we did not have no, no. <laughs> Yeah. And I think st- when we're still as many ways, I feel like we're still in a oh, pandemic sure. because we're still fielding some of those, you know, long haulers yes. or we're still getting new infections. We're still dealing with, you know, a triple pandemic yes. or triple 
epidemic, I think they're calling yeah. it, of, you know, RSV and children mm-hmm. and influenza and COVID. Mm-hmm. And everyone's kind of like, you know, it's we're ramping up again yes. and it's holiday time and it's winter time. And even those seasonal shifts mm-hmm. don't even really allow you for a break. And sometimes you get to a breaking point. Yeah. So speaking of that breaking point, how did burnout associated with those administrative burdens affect your home life, especially as a wife and a mother? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, it started with maybe staying late for work a day a week, and then it was late for work multiple days a week. And then it was making the decision that this is not what I want. I want to be home with my kids and Mm -hmm. young kids go to bed early. So if I get done at five, my kids go to bed at seven 30, I've got two and a half hours in the evening that I get to be with them. And so, you know, then it was, okay, I'm going to put this stuff aside, which is incredibly important, but I'm going to put this aside, go home and spend the time with my kids. And then after they go to bed, I'm going to finish this stuff up, which sometimes was taking three, four, five, six hours, writing notes, doing prior ops, answering patient questions, getting back to labs. And so then my household duties, you know, and I have an incredibly supportive partner, but still the washing the dishes, the doing the laundry, the upkeep of our house and the upkeep of the relationship with my partner where mm-hmm. they just weren't happening because something right. had, something had to fall. There was, had to be yeah, sacrifices. Literally only 24 yeah. hours in a day. And I, I reemphasize this with our clientele that yes, they're 24 hours. Some of that is you're sleeping. Incredibly Some important. Some of that you're addressing, you know, the bio, mm-hmm. bio matters that need to be taken care of. Like you have to bathe, you have, you know, hygiene, those things. And then that's just when you're taking care of yourself. Yeah. Then if you add little ones and partners and jobs and other aspects, you're whittling your way down. Like even if you're just talking about, you know, six hours of sleep at mm-hmm. night, you know, you're already working at around 18 hours. You haven't worked. You, there's no commute in there. There's no lunch. There's no meals. Mm-hmm. None of that's in there. And then there's work. And if work takes up, you know, 10 to 12 hours right. of that day, now you're at four hours, about four hours, six hours to eat, mm-hmm. take your hygiene, all, you know, all those things, mm-hmm. socialize, have normal conversations, relax, you know, and it's, and there's, it's just impossible um, to get all those things done. And the expectations are sometimes unrealistic, but yet we are trying to, especially as providers who are women mm-hmm. um, and providers who identify as women and those roles and responsibilities that we are accustomed to taking on, it's virtually impossible. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, that S on that, our chest that we, you know, as super women that we yeah. wear it doesn't fit anymore. And it's, it just doesn't fit yeah. anymore. And things slide so, and you're not happy. And yeah, it, it, it is funny how you sit and you'll talk to patients and you'll talk to patients about, it's really important for you to get six to eight hours of sleep. It's really important for you mm-hmm. to exercise. And those are the first things that fall off because you're going, yeah, but these other yeah. things are so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's that urgent versus important yeah. kind of paradigm. And sometimes it's really hard to determine which category that task or that responsibility falls Mm -hmm. into. Burnout increases one's risk for mental health challenges as well, including a high degree of emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, cynicism, a low sense of personal accomplishment at work potentially, Mm -hmm. and even anxiety and depression. Talk about this aspect and what it looked like in your own life. Yeah, I think where I was noticing it the most is when I was seeing patients as a number, right? Like Mm. this is my fourth patient of the day or, or, you know, we talk now about using patient centered language instead of disease centered language. So instead of this person is a diabetic saying this is a patient with diabetes so that we focus on the person as a person and especially family medicine, we, that's what we thrive in is seeing this person as a whole person. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't, I mean, there were times where I was going one more, three more, right? you know, and and that's not how patients want to be treated. And that's not how I want to treat patients because if I'm not taking care of them as the individual that they are, if I'm taking care of them as a number, I'm not doing my job as a healthcare provider. Um, And so the depersonalization was a big thing for me. I've struggled with anxiety and depression in the past, postpartum anxiety and depression. And I don't know that I ever clinically got there, but it was mm-hmm. moving in that direction, certainly. Right. And then, you know, there's the piece of, you know, 
you're not doing your best for patients and you're going, am I slipping or are there decisions that are being made that are going to lead to harm for this Mm. person? So for me, that's where the anxiety comes in is, you know, like this isn't my best me. Are, am I doing things that are going to lead to harm? Am I missing things? Yeah. Am I not changing things? What else is being compromised? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that yeah. we're not seeing because it's not right. right in front of us, but it's an outcome that could be a while yeah. in the making. In the making, exactly. And many providers are, and clinicians are choosing to leave the workforce early <laughs> in order to combat burnout. As you struggled with work-life balance, you too even considered working part-time and even quitting medicine entirely because there just wasn't enough of you to go around. Talk about how that, like that decision process and also what changed your mind. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a dual-edged sword. You're going, this is, this is where the stress is coming from and where I need to get out, but I have student loans that have to be paid. Um, Yes. yes. And which is a whole other <laughs> issue that you that you open the door to. But right. So there are people who are still in medicine because they don't have a backup. There's no backup. And mm-hmm. they have student loans that have to be paid because it, our education costs a lot of money. Um, right. And so that was where the balance was for me is going it financially is this feasible for my household for me to mm-hmm. go part time or. Right. or quit. But mostly I was thinking going part-time backing off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just wasn't. And so, you know, there was, there was yeah. never a point where it was like, you know, we talked about it, we considered it. There was never a point where it was like, okay, this is a decision that we can make comfortably yeah. and, and still provide for my family and pay my student loans and all of the things that go along with that. Um, but from a, mental health, more burnout perspective, I would say, you know, one, I I finally took a vacation, which is not something I was good at doing. And then two, Mm. just trying to figure out ways at work to decrease that burden. And, and so I'm very lucky that the, the company that I work for wants to make things better for their physicians. They want, um, they want happy, healthy physicians because they know that leads to happy, healthy patients. And, and so they're constantly exploring new technologies to help us and other things like that. So um, particularly, I use a dictation software called Suki, which is where a big part of the turning point was because I was spending hours on notes. And this changed from hours per note or, you know, 30 to 40 minutes per note yeah. to five, 10 minutes per note. And all of a sudden that opens up a lot more time. And so I can do the other paperwork and the other patient questions and the other responses at work. And now my evening is there and it's available. Um, And there, we all know there are days where that just doesn't work out, right? There are going to be days where Mm -hmm. we work after, but instead of that being an everyday thing, it's a once in a blue moon occurrence now. Um, And that made a, a huge difference to like where I was before and, where I am now. Yeah. And I think, again, it goes back to, yes, they're going to be stressful days. And that's whether you're a physician or any other, you know, or any other job, there are going to be days that are stressful. There are going to be days that you don't like. There are going to be things that you don't enjoy or or aspects that you don't enjoy. It's when that becomes, like you said, an everyday, all day before I even get to work experience where it's like I'm dreading work before I even get to the physical building. I'm dreading work and how I'm doing work and how I feel at work while I'm at work, mm-hmm. while I'm doing the work. Mm-hmm. Steady, constantly thinking is, am I doing it you know, well enough because of how I'm feeling? Like that thinking about thinking mm-hmm. kind of concept. And then it's like you leave work and you're relieved only temporarily because you're also not showing up to the best of your abilities at home. At home. Right. And then once you get home, you're trying to like overcompensate in ways that aren't healthy, mm-hmm. whether that's missing meals or eating meals and multitasking in ways that just aren't healthy mm-hmm. or conducive to a good forming the basis of a good relationship. And then it's like, OK, I can finally rest my head on the pillow only for the a minimal amount of time before that whole cycle starts all go. over again. Yeah. And it and it just doesn't end. So. This, like I'd like to, you know, always tell you stress is not an issue because we all have stress. Mm-hmm. Stress is actually good. Right. 
in healthy doses, it's when it becomes a way of life mm -hmm. to the point that it's affecting, you know, your activities of daily living mm -hmm. and how you approach those activities. So as we talk about distressing environments, um, these environments can strain physical, emotional, and uh, psychological well-being, and they make it harder for patients to get the care they need, even when they need it. And one of the primary concerns for burnout is not only to being able to emotionally take care of each patient individually or uniquely. So how did this affect you as how you related to your patients? Did, did you feel that your patients knew that you were experiencing burnout? Did they notice anything? I hadn't, I haven't had anybody say that they felt that, but I, you get patients who come in and they'll come in another time and say, you, you look like you feel more relaxed. You know, they'll, uh -huh. they'll say things like that. I think, or you look yes, tired. Yes, <laughs> it's like, yes. thank you very yeah, much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that, yeah, yeah. You're like, okay, great. I'll remember to put on my makeup tomorrow. You got it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that on a certain level, having experienced burnout helps me relate in an empathetic way to some of my patients um, who are right. struggling with their own jobs. So I hear a lot from teachers uh, that they're also experiencing burnout and, mm -hmm. and other, but I think at, I mean, there were definitely points where you were going, you're burnout. Yeah, me too. Like suck it up buttercup. You know, that's thinking right. that in my head going, you know, like, okay, you're here talking to me. I get it, but we both have to deal with it as opposed to like, mm -hmm. yeah, I totally understand what you're going through. This is rough. It's a hard time for all of us. Let's think about some support systems. Let's think about what we can right. do. Um, and so, you know, that's a same, same thoughts, different response, I suppose. Right. Yeah. And it's even harder to come up with those healthy options yes. and alternatives when, when you can't, can't find yourself. one yourself. Yes when it's like, I don't even, I can't even use a, my lived experience yeah. as a way to talk you through or talk you, you know, around or even address this because I'm in the same boat and I'm supposed to be the authority. I'm supposed to be, I guess, further along on this path. And yet I'm experiencing the same thing, but trying to show up in a way where I'm still um, an authority figure yeah. in this regard. And that I'm giving you this sound sage advice when at the same time I'm struggling too. Yeah. And I think that's an additional pressure that is that a, a practitioners in general face because we don't necessarily have that safety net to say, yeah, today is not a good yeah. day and I don't have all the answers. And people are coming expecting answers, fix it, mm -hmm. fix it now, fix it quickly. Um, and why don't you have the answers? Why is this the way it is? Who can help yeah. me if you can't? And it's that constant vicious cycle where it's like yeah and it's indicative of the you know the healthcare system we have mm -hmm. the you know and that you know system and you know it just kind of trickles down so the frustrations can be overwhelming on both ends of that um equation yeah. and i think you know it definitely burnout affects your patients but I, my experience is it was affecting my um co-workers so you know mm -hmm. i i can distinctly remember my nurse saying like hey can i talk to you for a sec because this is not something's mm -hmm. wrong here um yeah and like my co my the people i work with on a daily basis and so maybe my right. emotional energy was going to the patients and then i had nothing left to give to anybody else right yeah and I, again sometimes not even thinking about that you're just like, okay, my target is, you know, who's sitting in front of me, who's yeah. coming to me for care, but what about the people that are, you know, helping you yeah. dispense that care? And, you know, your relationship with your coworkers is vital so because you, there's someone who needs to like, you know, sneak you those snacks yeah. when you're eating in the elevator um, and, you know, that, those type of things and moving from one place to the next. And those are very important gap fillers because on you're going to be that for someone mm -hmm. else and someone else is going to be that for you given where you are and the timing. Yeah and all the demands. So yeah, that's important. That's another relationship, mm -hmm. you know, coworker relationship, not just the patient or the, you know, you know, the patient and then the family life as well. There's that coworker, coworker aspect yeah. too. So workplace systems cause, okay, a burnout among health mm -hmm. workers. We've established that, but there are also a range of societal and cultural and structural mm -hmm. and organizational factors that can also contribute to burnout among health workers. 
including excessive workloads, administrative burdens, Mm -hmm. limited input and scheduling, and also lack of organizational support. You mentioned that you seem to have a good um, support system in terms of your organization. Mm -hmm. Which of these do you feel had the largest negative effects and positive effects on you and your work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Like I said before, I'm very, very thankful for the place I work because they've always been very helpful with like, okay, how can we adjust schedules? Are there places we can move around? Or um, this is not the experience of most women physicians, but when I was nursing my son saying, okay, we're going to block off some appointment times for you. So you have time to nurse, Um, you know, all of the things that, that they've done has been, been wonderful. The thing that always gets me is the administrative burden. So it's the, Mm. It's the um, trying to convince somebody who's not doing clinical medicine that the decisions I'm making are the right decisions. So my patient can afford whatever it is that we've done. So, you know, I need an MRI of this patient's shoulder. Oh, you've not done physical therapy. No, we did physical therapy just, you know, three weeks ago. It's still not good. We need the MRI of the shoulder. And the time it takes to jump through all of those hoops to get the patient what they need. I remember one patient specifically that came in, had a mass. I was like, this is can't, this is a cancer. <laughs> this is mm-hmm. not. A-. And they're like, no, you have to have an ultrasound of this mass first before you can get the MRI. It's like the ultrasound and x-ray are not going to show me anything. They're not. Mm. And spending hours trying to just convince them to do what needed done and basic work, basic yeah. workup in a timely found fa- in a timely fashion. Three months. Cause yes. timing is an ab- essence. the essence. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah. That sort of thing is what really the, oh, I, they can't afford this medication, but I'm not going to mm. tell you which one of those types of medication they can afford, um, which one's on their formulary. So now I need to go discover their formulary and see which ones they can afford. Right. Those are the things that really, they wear you down because <laughs> yeah. you're like, I'm just trying to take good care of people. And, and it's the busy work. It's the busy and it's work. almost boils down to busy yes, work. Yes, the FMLA paper not, forms, the right, all of that. And even and even that the, the that kind of form. Okay, it's an FMLA form. I've got to. I mean, it's something I've got to figure yes. uh, fill out. But the red tape to get the basic yes. care. Yeah, that's the stuff that's taxing. Yeah, because in the meantime. The only person that has an interface with you is the person that's in need of that thing. Yeah. And, and they're super so frustrated. They they're like, why is this attack? not happening? Yeah. I, why is it taking so long? Yes. I could be dying and I have to go through all this. Yeah. And you're the only person in the interface that they have mm-hmm. or, you know, administrative staff or, um, but it's all the other things that they don't see. The, all that the behind the scenes doing, stuff that's going on. All yeah. the behind the scenes that's going on that you're trying mm-hmm. and you're getting the same roadblocks that you know, that they're, that they don't see, but they're still impeding forward progress in their care. And again, it's that next level where, okay, the insurance provider's like, well, that's what it says on the sheet. Yeah. And you're like, but you don't understand people don't read textbooks, right? Like that's the first thing you learn in clinical medicine is things don't look like what you learned they were supposed to look like. So uh, yeah, that back and forth argument and, and recognizing that that's a huge part a huge problem with our yeah. healthcare system. Um, I think that's where a lot of people feel burnout. And that's where a lot of doctors have gone to a DPC or direct primary care model is so they don't have to deal with those roadblocks from insurance. But you still right. have to deal with them because this patient's still going to have to pay oh, yeah. for imaging and still going to have to pay for medications. And how do we make that work? Yeah. And it's, and it's a, you know, six and one half a dozen the other, yeah. you may not be dealing with the insurance provider, but when it's cash based or mm-hmm. at, you know, directly out of pocket, that makes things unaffordable. Yes. So then it's like, okay, so either you're not getting care, you're not getting it in timely fashion, or you're not getting the right care, yep. or you don't have access to the appropriate care. So it's like accessibility, appropriateness, adequate, mm-hmm. you know, affordability, all these things. And they're kind of all mixed up and it depends on, you know, what presents to you. Right. There could be a, a you know, a mix mash of all those different things that are affecting mm-hmm. how that patient receives care. Mm-hmm. But the person they're coming for is yeah. you, their physician, their provider, because that's the only that's person the touch that they point know. They have. And that's the touch yeah. point. Exactly. So we've talked about, you know, people leaving and physicians and providers leaving the workforce. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about workforce shortages, we realize that the physician demand will continue to grow faster than supply. 
leading to a shortage of anywhere between 54 and 139,000 physicians in 10 years by the year 2033. The most alarming gaps are expected in primary mm-hmm. care and in rural communities. How do you see primary care changing in the near future? Uh, that's that's a tough question. I mean, so it it made a big leap and a change during COVID because telehealth really opened up. And I know right. myself and a lot of colleagues are saying like, please let's not get rid of that. Cause there's some discussions about not paying for that as well as they mm-hmm. were before, but that makes those quick depression, anxiety, ADHD follow-ups so much more convenient for us and for the patients. You can stack three or four of those in the time it would take to see a person here in the office. And still right. the patient gets good care because most of those you're touching base and saying, is med, are the meds working? Are they not? Okay, they're not. Let's make adjustments. We don't need the vitals and the, right. you know, a full, a full workup. workup. Right. We need, we mm-hmm. need, how are you feeling? Cause that's what these medicines are for is to tell us how you're right. feeling. Right. Um, so I, I see telehealth becoming expanding as we learn how to use that better. Uh, certainly, I think we're going to have a lot more adjunctive people kind of jumping in. So maybe some RNs that were having do home calls, not not necessarily to the patient's house, but calling them on a weekly basis and saying, okay, what are your blood pressures? What are your whatever? And following formulas that we've got set up. Okay. Their blood pressure is this. They need to come in and see me. Their blood pressures have been running here. You can adjust this medication up or down based on the individual person. So I kind of see that being something we certainly are seeing an increase in the team-based care model. So um, PAs and NPs, which some people call mid-levels, but just non-physician providers, um, helping and jumping into that. My hope would be that we're going to see more primary care physicians. The problem, you know, going back to a problem we discussed before is every doctor graduates medical school with about the same amount of debt and too much much debt. (laughs) Um, And the people who make the least are pediatricians, family practice docs, and internal medicine docs, which is the backbone of primary care. And studies show if you've got a good primary care doctor, you have much, much, much better outcomes than if you're just seeing specialists. So, you know, what I would love to see is an increase in reimbursement for these specialties, which is going to drive people into it. Um, Right. And then, you know, we'd also love to see decreases in administrative burden and all the things that are the the things that keep physicians out of primary care. But what I think what people don't realize is what you're missing is that relationship. Like, that's why we love what we do, because I see this patient more than any other specialist. And I know about their dog and who their veterinarian is and which restaurants they like to eat at. And mm-hmm. really where they went on vacation yes, they, and yes. who got married yes. and who just had a baby yes. and who got gout this week and you know, what's going on at church. Right. And you know, those are the, those things. are the yeah. things that I know. And I get to know because they let me into their lives because we see each yeah. other that frequently. Um, right. And, and so that's like the beautiful part of primary care. It's just getting yeah. through all the other stuff to get to that. Yeah. And I think that's, you talked about it earlier on as a calling. Uh, I pretty much feel the same way. Um, even though I did, you know, my specialty is completely different, but it was, I knew this is what I wanted to do, but I got to a point where I felt like I was a hormone dispenser, mm-hmm. a, a, p- a pill pusher or a surgical yeah. tech and nobody was getting any better, but I was still, like you'd mentioned, going through all the motions and making sure I kept my patient load that, you know, high for the day. But then I had another whole full-time job when it was, you know, time to come Mm -hmm. home and I didn't have children. And it was just like, okay, I'm doing all this and I'm coming home, but I'm coming home to do just as much work because I want it to be fresh. I want to make sure those notes and all Mm -hmm. those other things and phone calls and follow-up emails and everything else is done. But I've already been at work, literally at work since six o'clock that day when I started rounds or whatever it was, and I'm not getting home till seven or eight o'clock. I'm going to, you know, shovel some things in my mouth right before I, you know, go to bed, which was also tragic in and of itself. And then I'm going to try to do some more work just so I can be able to get up and have some of it done Mm -hmm. before six o'clock the next morning. And that cycle isn't sustainable. And again, everybody loses. Mm -hmm. It's not a, you know, oh, the providers just, you know, burn out, but no, everybody loses in this scenario. And it's, it's, 
not necessarily it's not a quick fix because it has to be something that's systemic that's going to address these issues. So differential effects on healthcare workers between burnout, resource shortages, and even a high risk for severe COVID-19 infections have unevenly affected women and healthcare workers of color. This is due to pre-existing inequities and around social determinants of health that have been exacerbated, like you mentioned before, Mm -hmm. by the pandemic. Talk to us about the importance of health equity and how these effects can and will disproportionately affect the medically underserved. Oh, that that's a tough question. And I can speak to it as a woman, certainly, certainly not of a, yeah. a person of color, but I know that um, if you look at, and I don't have the number right in front of me, but the last time I had looked at it, the statistics are about 50% of females, uh, female healthcare workers will drop to part-time within five years yeah. of graduating medical school because of the other demands, whether it's societal or that we put on ourselves. I mean, to be realistic, um, don't leave room for you to be a healthy person or provider. Um, and, and I know that a lot of the healthcare disparities and things like that, the people who serve the underserved are running into even more of these administrative blocks than what I am. I'm, I'm in a relatively, um, affluent community. I see people who have resources if we can't get this paid for, but the people working in FQHCs, which are designed to be in our underserved areas, are dealing with this more than I am. The, you know, this isn't on the formulary, that's not on the formulary. And the access issue is even higher there because people don't want to practice in those areas. They just don't. Right. They end up practicing. And, FQ, yeah. and, just, Sorry. and just for our listeners, an FQHC is a federally qualified health center. Yeah. Um, and it's, again, in a population, whether that be rural or urban, mm-hmm. um, that is really dealing with the indigenous, the uninsured, mm-hmm. the underinsured, um, and pretty much the the least of these when we consider the overall patient population just so we could um, make that clarification thank you yeah um i appreciate you for clarifying that um and they they don't have the flexibility to make schedule changes a lot of the people who are working here are working here to finish paying off their loans but then by the time they're done paying off their loans because that's they're they're done they're like i'm medicine is done for me and so that again exacerbates the shortage elsewhere of taking care of patients you know um and then you have like free clinics that are set up by churches and, and um, mm-hmm. things like that to help serve this population of people we're talking about. But the le- resources there are even more limited because we're talking mm-hmm. non-insured patients not don't right. qualify for Medicaid for whatever reason. If they're in that gap of, I make just enough money, but yeah. not enough to afford insurance. Or just not yes. enough. Yeah, but not enough to make any changes in, in, in my station in yes. life, and especially how my medical decisions and healthcare yeah. is concerned. And so in those instances, you're even more tight. Your hands are even more tight about what care I can actually provide to a patient. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I answered and the I, question. <laughs> oh no, definitely. So. And I, I mean, speaking to the woman and the person of color, black woman um, aspect, it is rough because I know I always wanted to show up to have, I did work at a federally qualified health center at one time and I wanted to be someone that my clientele, my patients could say looks like me. They understand Mm -hmm. the things that I'm going through in a way that they didn't have to deal with the microaggressions and Mm -hmm. just the misunderstanding of the, you know, cultural things. And sometimes it was even language. Um, I am multilingual. So it helped that there was one person in the office that could speak and conduct a, a in a whole appointment without having to bring in the language line. And because that's, again, it's a help, but it's also a hindrance if you don't know the norms and mores of the culture. Um, And so it is when, but then when you have people who are leaving, because again, they're burnt out, talk about a job. And this was years ago, but a job that I loved, but a job that literally sucked the life, like sucked the entire life out Mm -hmm. of me. I mean, it was just, it was too much. It was too much. And the reason that I even stayed as long as I did was because I was like, if I'm not here, who is, who gonna is be? going to yeah. be here? Who's going to do my job? Mm-hmm. And I was waiting, you know, for someone, but they're not jobs that people are going to dive at because they're not necessarily attractive. Mm-hmm. The pay isn't necessarily great. The rewards are many when you can finally get to them. Right. 
and the work that you have to get to, but you have to work to get through the, like the tape on top of tape. And it's, and and there's always more, there's, there's never a day where it's like, wow, I got it. I got it done today. It's like, I got this aspect done, but there's still 10 more things that this family, this individual needs need in order to just get to threshold. Mm -hmm. We're not talking so that they can be in a flourishing state. We're talking just so they can be out of the full-blown, you know, survival mode and doing that day in and day out is, is rough even when you are doing good and feel good about the work that you're doing, but it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, it just speaks to an overall healthcare system that needs some repair and trying to navigate it is rough for providers and patients alike. So healthcare worker burnout, we realize it harms all of us. And if it's not addressed, the workforce burnout crisis will make it harder for patients to receive the care when they need it and how they need it. They're going to cause healthcare um, costs to rise and hinder our ability to prepare for the next public health emergency. Also, while worsening the health disparities that already exist. Mm-hmm. While you have found an individual solution in Suki that works for you, there seems to be so many other looming factors that contribute to that overarching burnout crisis. Why do you? What do you think hospitals can do to prevent healthcare worker burnout? Yeah, and I, I don't work for a hospital. Uh, again, I think okay. that's probably why my company is so good at what it does is it's it's still okay. physician-owned, so, um, okay. which is rare these days to have a physician-owned primary care group. Um, yes. But I think it goes back to that administrative burden, uh, at least yeah. for me. I mean, mm-hmm. I could see more patients in a day if it wasn't all of the other things. And so I, I think, and I think people are working on this, but, you know, having a social worker who's trained to help work through those prior auths and things like that, just removing those things. So it's really when I'm in the room with a patient, it's me with a patient and not yeah. me with the patient and the insurance person back here saying, Oh, can't do that. Yeah. Don't do yeah. that. Don't click that. Yes, this is the wrong thing. <laughs> Unauthorized. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, I also think, you know, from a woman's perspective, something that across medicine we could do better is what, what does maternity care look like? Right. Like, mm, even, yeah. Why do most women physicians not have paid maternity leave? And it makes sense if I'm not seeing patients, nobody in my clinic is making any money. But yeah, why can't I take this time and have paid maternity leave? And what does it look like when I'm trying to care for my kid? And how does that mm-hmm. balance with all of the other responsibilities that make me a whole person and not just a robot who's sitting in, in a room? And so there yeah. are hospitals who do incredibly well at that. And there are hospitals and systems who do just a very poor job and see yeah. you as a button clicker, money pusher, pill pusher, and that's not what we got into medicine to be. I don't know a single person who's like, I'm going into medicine so I can be rich. I've not met one yet. Yeah. And there was a time where that was the thing, but it's also now a time versus time spent time versus money, I guess time spent versus money equation. And I, you know, think about it when you break it down to hourly wage, it might be barely making minimum when you think about all the time, not just in the facility, not just, you know, directly interfacing with, but that's the, like you said, the administrative Mm -hmm. aspects, the running down insurance, the connections with social workers, all those different other aspects that are not patient care, that aren't what the training was actually for the coding things of those, um, that, that nature. Yeah. They're still part of the job, but are not a part of the actual training, if that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and there's a lot of time and, sometimes they definitely don't match, mm-hmm. definitely don't match. They don't match. So, uh, yeah, so often, especially as providers who are women, we talk about striking that ever elusive balance. So talk to us about the realities of what balance truly looks like in your own life and what misconceptions still remain. Yeah. So I don't think there is any, any such thing as work-life balance, right? Like we say that, that's the, Thank that's you. the term. Thank you for saying yeah. that. That's all I yeah. wanted to yeah. hear because I think we still are throwing that yeah. out. Like, oh, work-life balance. Yeah. And that means, you know, 50% here and 50% right. there. 
that's not how it happens. Yeah. But go ahead. Yeah, Thank you. I, I really do. I think it, it's like the the term, right? Like burnout is a term yeah. we're supposed to throw out. Work life balance is a term we're supposed to throw out. And like you said, as physicians, you know, even if I go home and I have no work to take home with me, my patients come home with me that day, and I go, mm-hmm. "Did I make? Did we make the right decision? Is that person yeah. going to be okay? I'm a little worried about that person." And so there, it's always there. But for me, it's about setting boundaries, right? So mm-hmm. that. From the time I walk in the door, 5.30-ish, until my kid's head hit the pillow, that is family time. And the only time that gets interrupted by work is if I'm on call, which for my practice is like once every two weeks. It's not a huge amount of time. But otherwise, that is not a time that's going to be interrupted by work. Um, And that has really helped. And then trying to set aside other times, date times and things like that, where this this is my boundary. And work is mm-hmm. not allowed to enter into this boundary. Um, right. And and vice versa, right? Like, while I'm at work, I think about my kids and I love my kids. And unless one of them is sick or dying, I'm not going to answer a text from my nanny while right. I'm with my patient. This is my boundary. Yeah. This is where I am right now. And this is who yeah. needs me right this second. And I trust mm-hmm. the person that I've um, employed to take care of my children to make decisions. And if I didn't, then I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing. So it's not really a balance so much as finding those times to set the boundary and say, this, this is a place where work can't be, but also Mm -hmm. this is a place where when I'm here, I need to be here. And if I can't be here for whatever reason, my kids are sick or something happens, I need to be able to say that. And thankfully, Mm -hmm. like I said, my company is very supportive for me to say like, my daughter had a UTI and her fever was 105 and I tried to come to work and they were like, go home. What are you yeah, doing? Be right. <laughs> home with your kid. Right. And, and so I'm very thankful and lucky for that. And that's not true of every physician that there is. So, right. um, but being able to say like, this is a place where work is, this is a place where life is. And then there are places where it gets muddled and, and yeah. both are happening and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times you've mentioned boundaries, but it's also being consistent about reinforcing those boundaries. If it's going to be a boundary that you've set, but there's constant encroachment or constant um, interference Mm -hmm. or blurring of that line, then it's so much easier for it's like, okay, let's have it one time. Yeah. I'll just let it, yeah, maybe this, maybe I'll just, you know, move it, move that boundary a little bit either way, or just be really flexible and loosey goosey with it. But then it becomes that blurred line where all of a sudden we're back to the same place. And in the beginning, sometimes it does feel mean or it feels that somebody is being shorted. And at the end of the day, that is exactly what it means mm-hmm. because something is getting shorted. It has to yeah. because that 24-hour day does not change for anyone. I don't have any more hours than you, <laughs> than you have, than the next person. Yeah. It's that same 24-hour day no matter when it starts or, you know, stops. It's a 24-hour, you know, day cycle, 24-hour day mm-hmm. cycle. And being mindful, again, of those boundaries, reinforcing them being consistent is the key to navigating that balance. Because yeah, there are going to be some times where it blurs or overlaps, Mm -hmm. but when it becomes just a way of life, that's again, what, you know, feeds into that burnout. So as we end uh, burnout, we realize that burnout is a workplace issue that calls for systems oriented organizational level solutions. Are there any additional resources you suggest for listeners who are struggling with burnout? Yeah. So, um, here in Virginia, they passed a law called, uh, and the program is called Safe Haven. Um, and okay. I highly recommend that for any physician in Virginia who, and they're, they're, it's, they're starting to pass these same laws throughout the United States, basing it on our system here. Um, but at a, one of the things with physician burnout is, you know, in the past, if we sought mental health care, now you have to report this on your license. Now your license could get revoked depending on whoever's reviewing your license. And again, we talked about, this is my livelihood. This is what I need to do this to, in order to pay my student loans and all the other things. Mm -hmm. Safe Haven is a program that was put into place where you can seek confidential HIPAA medical care for psychiatric stuff without having to report it on your license. Um, It also has other things like it's got uh, peer coaching. So you could talk to another physician and say like, hi, I'm just really struggling with this aspect. How do you handle it? And then things to help with that, like, oh, it's my mother-in-law's birthday. Can you help me 
get her flowers, um, yeah. different things. There's also financial planning in there and things like that. So it, it's a really cool program. Um, I'm not sure if at an institution level you have to buy into it. I know ours did and has implemented mm-hmm. it and I've used it and it's fantastic. Okay. Um, I think you also could look into your like your medical society. So AAFP, which is family medicine, ACOG, which is gynecology, um, and all of the others, they aren't perfect, but they're also working on burnout. So they have a lot of resources, at least AAFP does, um, mm-hmm. that you can get into. And then it's very valuable, in my opinion, to have colleagues that you can talk to, that you can yeah. go to and say, like, because nobody else understands except mm-hmm. other physicians. Um, right. As much as my husband tries, he's never going to understand that I make life and death decisions on a daily basis. And that patients need me and all of these things. And he does, he's wonderful and he tries his best, but nobody understands like a physician who's in it. So having colleagues and a group of peers that you can talk to and say like, this is where I'm really struggling. What are your recommendations? I think are, you know, these are things we can put into place right now. Things you can put into the place in the future is, you know, get on your hospital's committees, get on your organization's Mm -hmm. board. Let's start bringing this at a board level and saying, what can we do from the top to change things? Because you can do a lot from the bottom, but you got to be involved at the top, legislative, boards, societies to start making changes. Yeah. And I think as you talked about that kind of dynamic, it's important for the people who have the experience Mm -hmm. at the bottom to convey those messages to the top because the people at the top sometimes are so far removed or have never even had the experience that they don't even know that is it an experience to have cannot relate and therefore cannot affect change medicine was a lot different like my parents are both physicians so i've seen medicine was a lot different just 20 years ago like five years ago (laughs) things are yeah things are changing so quickly and so the the people who are now doing those boards and doing making those decisions may have been clinicians at one point but if they've not been in it since EMRs and they've not been in it since telehealth, telehealth <laughs> since uh, risk adjustment factor coding, since all of the things right. that we do now, they're not going to they're not going to understand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So last question, any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? Oh, gosh, I don't think I'm a wise person. Um Oh, don't say that. Don't say that. You are. You have a lot of life experience. Be be humble enough to realize when you're struggling. Uh, be prideful enough to seek for help. Yeah. I think that's very, very wise. That's very wise. Because a lot of times, again, with that S on our chest, we feel like we are supposed to be superheroes. And if the superhero is failing or if the superhero is wavering or or the appearance of even wavering or seeming weak, then it's something to hide. It's something to run from. It's something to be ashamed of. And again, that makes sure everyone is in that same line of fire as that provider or that practitioner deteriorates. So I think that's a very good word of wisdom. And thank you so much, Dr. Gaw. Thank you. Thanks for joining Women's Health Wisdom and Wine. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Think about one gem you can take away from this episode and apply it to your own life. Also, remember to follow us, review us, and give us five stars. Till we meet again, remember, nourish your flourish.